never attribute to stupidity what is clearly malice. This is the Blackwater Epicast. Harvey left our company before we left the desert. He didn't seem quite right after the Cliff City. Well, I suspect he wasn't ever right in the head, but after that he was very quiet. Eventually he said in a casual and very off-handed way that it was time for him to move along and find his place to settle down. He wouldn't accept the bandit's full share of the gold bars. Oh, it's too much. I wouldn't know what to do with it. He finally agreed to half of it, which he may still believe is less than a third. His mind is a very strange place. However, his innate modesty will probably keep him from losing it all to gambling or riotous living. Sold a little bit at a time, the gold will keep him comfortable and cheerfully thoughtless for the rest of his life. The English component of our company is now on the steamship on its way from New Orleans to London. At least those of us who remain. As we neared New Orleans, I considered the annoyance which is Marshal Paxton. There was no way of knowing for certain how successful he had been in tracking us over the past few weeks. Our meandering path was intended to lose any followers, but it was certainly possible that he could have ignored the bait and returned to the port city before us. While a chessboard reveals every maneuver of one's opponent, leaving their intentions to the realm of speculation, the world at large can conceal an opponent's actions even when their intentions are quite clear. I would need to begin by discovering if the marshal was behind us or ahead. As soon as we arrived, I set about meeting with my various business contacts in turn, in most cases a necessary meeting to finalize our arrangements, with only a handful disguised as courtesy calls. These were completed by the first evening. Sure enough, some of my contacts were aware of Paxton's blustering return to the city last week. Though he had made himself known here and there, no one seemed to know where he was at any given moment. More alarming were the snippets of stories he had apparently been telling, which would explain the caution some of my contacts had been exhibiting around myself and my men. He had also been claiming to have a way to prevent my supplies from leaving the country. Now that I had established the presence of a wasp in the room, the next task was to be sure of its location. Swinging at it wildly as it flew by would do no good. The entire process would have gone more smoothly had not Mr. King begun to act very strangely. He would stare off into space, nearly unresponsive, until someone physically jostled him, and sometimes would say the most random things without warning or preamble. I am normally surrounded by people best described as unconventional, but they are expected to rein it in while in a meeting or when there are things to be done. But my irritation at these new and unhelpful quirks was overshadowed by my recollection of the warning given us that only distance from the New Orleans bayous would allow King to retain his sanity. I am not one given to superstition, as you know, but I am also aware that there are wonders in this world which have not yet been brought to the investigative light of science. For the sake of safety, from both madness and the law, we would need to set sail as quickly as we may. As quickly as we may turned out to be two mornings after our arrival. Our passage was assured in that afternoon of meetings, including assuring some of the supplies we came for would be in the hold, but there was no hurrying the schedule of the liner. 
we would need to wait out the remaining hours attempting to avoid unnecessary entanglements, and in removing entanglements which had apparently come to find us. My last best hope for tracking down Paxton was Reb, our previous guide to the swamp and, as he put it, aid to his fellow man. He was not to be found at his usual post by Jackson Square, so I went to his shop of oddities. His absurd hat was visible in the gloom of the crowded little store even as I entered, half-blinded by the brilliant afternoon sun. He moved from behind the shelf where he worked to see the new visitor, and an expression of delighted surprise appeared on his dark features. Well, as I live and breathe, the Baron has returned. He swept off his hat with the same extravagant gesture and bow that he had when we first met, somehow knocking none of the items from the shelves. As he returned the hat to his head, he continued, I was beginning to wonder if I would ever see you and your friends again. I hear that you have been having some adventures. Oh, hello, Mac Thomas. I heard Mac Thomas move slightly to tip his hat, but homed in on something Reb had said. You've heard that, have you? And exactly who has been relating these tales? I's a suspicion you know. That marshal was in here just earlier today, bragging how he was going to thwart your schemes, he actually talks like that, and wanted me to stay away because you're dangerous, like I hadn't met you or anything already. Been hearing stories from Texas, too, where even the tales are tall, but I'm guessing they didn't have to exaggerate much, did they? I heard you was robbed at a bank where gold vanished from a welded shut safe and got taken for ransom by the robbers who blew up the road to keep the police away. I also heard you stole half a train full of cattle and then sold them at half price. <laughs> I thought, no, that's probably just what happened. His face turned serious and inquisitive. Marshall also said you traveled around in partnership with the bandits for a while, then killed them all in some huge fight. Did they cross you or something? Says he found what all happened and decided to get here ahead of you. Whole thing was outlandish enough I think he made it up, excepting he has no imagination. So he's been back in town for a few days and planning to cause trouble. Anything specific? Oh yeah. He said your supplies will get stopped at the port. He's making arrangements for the law to get in the way so they can't load up. He's setting it all up tonight near the Lafayette Cemetery. Meeting the Port Authority at Commander's Palace Restaurant, perhaps. He didn't say, but it would make sense. I bid Reb adieu and return to our temporary quarters. We set sail in the morning, and the need to clear whatever obstacles had been set for us weighed upon my mind. We would need to find Paxton to find a way past those hurdles, and preferably without his knowing that we had done so. About an hour after sunset, I went to the garden district, taking Wellesley and Fabrice, and found a place to watch the entrance to the commander's palace. It wasn't too long before Paxton approached from the opposite direction. At the gate he paused and looked up and down the street, then went inside. I instructed my henchmen to wait and watch, and after three minutes followed the marshal. The exuberance of the staff very nearly gave away my presence on arrival. However, Paxton had already gone to another room, and once I explained that I had no reservation, but merely wanted to pause for a drink, they immediately began to extol the virtues of the bar staff and their various cocktails, and showed me to a small table. It was very easy to put them at ease. As a waitstaff should be, they were attentive when wanted, but nearly invisible otherwise. I had not expected such skill from American service. In a few minutes, 
I got up on the pretext of seeing more of the restaurant, and soon found Marshal Paxton meeting with a man fairly well-dressed for a bureaucrat, clearly a ranking city official. I was unable to get closer due to the layout of the room, and as I considered the problem, Paxton glanced my direction. I ducked back, cursing my ill fortune. It was quite possible that he had seen me. I would have to retreat to my quiet corner and wait to find out. Sure enough, in a very few minutes, Paxton strode through to the main entrance, looking like someone trying not to seem in a hurry. I finished my drink and followed as soon as I dared. He was gone by the time I reached the street, but Wellesley and Fabrice related that he had merely traveled a few dozen yards, then glanced about before darting into the cemetery across the street. Though I had accidentally interrupted his meeting, he could certainly soon return to it, or go on to some other bit of business in the interest of damaging mine. I needed to know what that was. There was nothing for it but to follow the busybody lawman. We dodged the pool of light by the cemetery gate and slipped in, hiding behind one of the mausoleums. The water table beneath New Orleans is nearly at ground level, and inhabitants have found that a buried casket will literally float to the surface given time. Therefore, burial above ground is the rule rather than the exception, and a graveyard is a small city of marble and granite. Except for the broad paths that divided it into quarters, it was difficult to see very far at all. We would need to make a quiet search. Then, in the shadows behind the mausoleum, I had a sudden realization. Why was the marshal meeting with a city official at a restaurant rather than an office? It was the sort of thing that was done when politicking or off-books procedures were wanted, but they were meeting to plan fairly normal, if obnoxious, application of law enforcement. Or did he plan to meet him here for some other reason? And how was it that I knew those plans to begin with? Furthermore, there was no reason whatever for him to hide in a graveyard when light and crowds would be the best armor against any ill intent I might have. This, on the other hand, offered darkness, shadows, places to hide, and very little chance of public scrutiny. A perfect place for an ambush. I gestured for Fabrice to look down the next row, perpendicular to our hiding place, and to the side of where Paxton now stood expectantly, thumbs hooked in his belt. She quickly returned, signaling that there was at least one guard hiding in the shadows on that side. I suppressed a sound of frustration and began to return to the gate. However, another man now stood in the light at its opening, holstered pistol clearly visible. I really should have seen this coming. My strangled growl of annoyance caught his attention, and he turned toward us, eyes squinting and hand ready to draw. Wellesley raised up slightly from his crouch, having picked up a fist-sized chunk of fallen marble and flung it to the guard. It hit him squarely on the forehead, and he silently fell over backward. No one else seemed to notice, so he hurriedly ran to him, crossed his ankles for easy pulling, put his hat on his chest, and dragged him by his arms into the shrubbery outside the gate. Still mentally cursing myself for nearly falling into Paxton's trap, we left the garden district with all speed.
We returned to our rented rooms to find King acting more strangely than ever. His thoughts seemed to skitter about, the man grasping at them like dried leaves blowing past. As one crumbled, he seized another. The deep, the deep, it wakes into my dream. It's all not real, you know. The face, the veil, it wakes into me. I'll wake into it soon, while they dance. Mac Thomas looked uncharacteristically distressed. Soon it will sleep and I won't dream, I'll wake into its dream. Last night it wakes into mine, the deep, the deep, it's the deep, they dance to the deep. We had our evening meal brought to us, the better to keep ourselves out of Paxton's sight and Mr. King in ours. For his part, our geological chemist did little more than stare oddly into an unseen distance and occasionally cock his head as though listening to a voice just outside. He ate nothing. We ate, and then each of us busied ourselves with whatever seemed best to pass the time. Perhaps an hour later, we heard a slightly frantic knock at the door. It was Reb, holding one of his necklace talisman boxes, but looking panicked. Did you send Mr. King out for anything? What? Just as I entered the building, I saw him walking north, toward the river. In that brief time, Mr. King would have gained quite the head start on us. How the devil did he leave without anyone noticing? I barked an order, and in a moment we were on our way out the door, fully armed and on the lookout for either King or anyone else with designs on him. Reb led the way, having at least seen what direction the man had been heading. Sure enough, in the moonlight we saw a small boat heading away from the landings, one figure visible in its stern, the sound of its outboard motor, dim but clear. Oh no! It's as I feared. He's going back to that island. We gotta get to him first. Finding another small craft was simple enough. Catching up to a man driven by, well, who knows what, was another task altogether. Nevertheless, we managed to get close enough to hail King. He gave no sign that he heard us calling out to him. The cultist island was visible. The sight of another boat intercepting him was a relief, until I realized that at its prow sat none other than... Marshal Paxton. One of his men boarded King's boat and forcibly took control from him. I urged my crew to all speed. Ahead of us in the moonlight, we could see King and the lawman struggling for the tiller. The boat soon ran aground on the cultist island, knocking both from their feet. A moment later, Paxton's craft was beached beside it with military efficiency, and his other men attempted to seize Mr. King, grasping at him as he dodged and spun with agility uncharacteristic of the mild-mannered geologist. The entire scrum had disappeared into the reeds and trees well before we reached the murky shore. We landed and ran. Catching up was the easy part. Removing Mr. King from several armed men was quite another question. 
From behind a discreetly distant tree, I observed that Paxson and his five subordinates stood casually around a nearly catatonic Mr. King, who stared vacantly at the ground a few yards in front of himself. One of the deputies held handcuffs, but hadn't bothered to apply them to their apparently subdued captive. Instead, the group discussed what to do next. Returning immediately to town with their prize was the preference for two of the number, but Paxton argued that taking the leaders of the cult would be an easy additional enforcement of justice. Killing two birds with one stone, putting a stop to their dangerous and unnatural perversions, was how he put it. The marshal therefore led his group of varying levels of enthusiasm toward the faint sound of drums and the flicker of a bonfire casting strange flashes of orange into the trees. It probably never occurred to them to wonder why their prisoner was suddenly so docile now that they were moving toward the wild ceremony. I retraced the few steps back to my people and gave quick instructions. McThomas made sure each member was properly equipped, including a terrified but determined Reb, they then split into two groups and quietly hurried down the paths we remembered from our first visit to this island. For my part, I caught up to the marshal and his company and said as though in a drawing room, Really, marshal, the ruse at the graveyard was rather clever. I very nearly fell for it. The entire group, excepting Mr. King, jumped as though stung. All of Paxton's men had instantly drawn their pistols, but he gestured for them to stand down. Well now, Baron, right nice of you to join us. On a walk all by your lonesome, are you? Would you believe me if I said I was? Of course not, but there are more of us than there are of you, even if you had the help of Mr. King here, and each of my men are trained law enforcement, hunters of violent criminals. And yet I walked right up to you. Not terribly surprising. You're so cocky you figure you can outthink a bullet. You all seemed fairly surprised, actually. Except for that chap. I indicated the one with a bandage on his head, visible below his hat. His reflexes seem a bit slow today. Yeah, that injury is getting added to your very long list of crimes. You're even more lucky than he is that it wasn't more serious. Being hit in the head with a small rock. Come now, I doubt there's much in there to damage. The deputy seethed and started to move forward, but Paxton, with a weary look, waved him back. You might want to watch yourself unless you want to try that out-thinking a bullet thing. And speaking of which, I'll be having my revolver back now. You've been chasing me all over the American deserts because of that pistol. Don't try to tell me it was for the gold. I was at that bank for business, not a lunatic robbery scheme. And I think you know that it was neither I nor my people, nor anything resembling a person, that killed the bandits. What is it about this pistol? It's not the pistol. It's what its theft represents. It's the disrespect for the law, the damage to my honor, to the honor of all who wear this badge. Besides, I don't much care if those other charges stick. They're mostly to be sure that even a peer of the realm has trouble getting extradited. You, sir, have an entirely overdeveloped sense of honor. Don't you know that pride precedes a fall? and I'm fairly certain that chasing me around would not be considered a good use of funds by those who hold your purse strings. Can't we take care of this politely, like gentlemen? In exchange for Mr. King here, I shall not only return your lovely pistol, but I shall leave and never be seen in Louisiana again. Last time I tried being gentlemanly with you, I got a face full of soup. Nothing doing. We'll be bringing you in along with your man and also the ringleaders of that nutty circus just down the path there. 
none of your smoke and mirrors are going to make any difference. I'm afraid I've no mirrors today, Marshal. Fortunately, I did bring some smoke. An instant later, eight canisters landed in a circle around the group and began pouring out clouds of dense pale grey smoke. I was very pleased with the latest improvements I'd made to the design. I dropped to a crouch, predicting a trigger-happy response from the deputies. Sure enough, a few shots rang out before Paxton bellowed at them to stop. In that time, I crept toward King's position, holding my breath to avoid the smoke, only to find he had gone. The plan had been to slip him into the trees and return to the boat by the parallel paths. Instead, as Paxton and his men coughed and waved and searched the undergrowth near where we'd had our little chat, I came out of the cloud on the far side to see my entire group scurrying after King toward where I could see shadowy figures and a manic dance. I followed with all haste. I caught up to my group at the entrance to the ceremonial beach clearing. The cultists danced as ecstatically as before, but included broad beckoning movements toward us, or rather, toward Mr. King. Reb and McThomas struggled to restrain Mr. King from joining in, and Fabrice and Wellesley stood threateningly between him and the dancers, in case they decided to recruit him more forcibly. We've got to go. The others will be here soon. Just pick him up and let's be off this beach. No, Baron, we're here now, thanks. Hands away from the pistol. I'll just take that, thank you very much. You two, take Mr. King by the arms. Now see how easy that is when you've been trained to make an arrest? And Reb, what are you doing here? Mixing with the wrong sort of people is going to get you into trouble. Alright, you three stay here with him, and we'll cut in on that dance over there. As he spoke, Paxton had to slowly raise his voice as the drums and chanting became steadily louder. He finished his instructions as it came to a climax, drums pounding in frantic rhythm, and the chants morphed into desperate howls. The lawmen had taken only a pair of steps toward the bonfire when a sudden change brought them up short. The dancers, drummers, and their leader simultaneously ceased and bowed with their faces to the ground and their arms outstretched in supplication toward the water of the bayou. The only sound was that of the fire and a strange babbling from the necklace-laden leader. A glow began in the water a few dozen yards from the shore and rose up like an enormous yellow-green bubble the color of an infected wound. We all quite naturally turned to look at the strange new arrival and were entranced by its slow revelation. The bubble was the dome-shaped head we had seen before, or I assume it was the entirety of what passed for its head, and below it the spreading glow rose but remained below the surface of the murky water. Its shape was hard to determine, but certainly broad, it faded downward at its edges, and from those edges extended wide tendrils of glowing green, as though it was partly squid or octopus. Having risen above the surface, the vertical lids on the many eyes opened, and it surveyed the scene. The eyes' color shifted and glowed, differently than it had in our previous encounter. A primal horror seized my mind, the most primitive parts demanding that I leave this place and never return. But I could not move. I could not speak. I could not look away. In my peripheral vision, I could see that the others shared my paralysis. Or, oh, most of us did. Several of the eyes redirected themselves to where we stood. The water roiled around the glowing dome. A voice like metal grating against wet metal sounded in my head, speaking words, or something like words, that I could not identify, and whose sounds I would be hard-pressed to even imitate. A moment later, Mr. King separated himself from the man who still held his arm, 
and began walking toward the water. I willed him to stop, unable to do more or even to look away. He continued walking without hurry and with absolute purpose into the water, apparently not even noticing as it lapped about his legs. It was above his waist when two narrow tendrils of sickly light sneaked their way to him beneath the water. He stopped walking, and the tendrils surrounded him, raising out of the water to show their paddle-like shapes. They swirled about him, wrapping their broad, flat heads around his head and shoulders, then drew him bodily toward the Dome of Eyes. Before reaching the dome, the tentacles carrying Mr. King descended into the water of the bayou and disappeared. The enormous glowing thing and its green dome lowered itself into the swamp and faded from view. We were all suddenly able to move again. Most of us collapsed to the ground. One of Paxton's men crawled to a nearby bush and heaved into it. The marshal himself remained on hands and knees, staring at the ground beneath him, as I, by sheer force of will, pulled myself together, picked up the seven-shot revolver from where it lay beside him, and returned it to the holster inside my coat. The cultists had apparently decided to leave before any of their uninvited visitors could cause more trouble, and were nowhere to be seen. Wellesley had also shaken off the shock of paralysis, and was helping our other people to their feet. Before the lawmen could recover, we left, returning to our boat, and then to the city in utter silence. It was early this morning that my party boarded the ship. There was no sign of Paxton anywhere. He may have decided that our loss was sufficient for the purposes of his honor, or his mind might still reel from the horror of what we faced, and the still greater horror that it touched his own consciousness and compelled him to inaction and that it could have done worse. For my part, the long quiet of the voyage gives me far too much time for contemplation of exactly these matters, the changes they have wrought in me, of what it has cost, and of this wild yet promising land and its strange history lying barely beneath the surface. The Blackwater Ethercast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Anita Simon. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Today's entertainment was Baker Miller Pink by Samuel Siner. Be sure to subscribe to the Ethercast and send your friends to lordblackwater.com so they can too. Also, visit lordblackwater.com to be featured entertainment. And thanks for listening, and for feeding the cat.